Welcome to this month's episode of Women in Foreign Policy. I'm one of your hosts, Ashley. I'm a foreign policy professional working in D.C. And I'm Annika. I am now officially a graduate student studying conflict in Geneva, Switzerland. You're listening to the monthly podcast of a Women in Foreign Policy organization, where each month, Annika and I discuss a different topic in foreign policy and hear from women working on that issue. Last month, we had a feature-length interview with noted foreign policy author and feminist theorist Dr. Cynthia Enlow. If you haven't listened, definitely go back and enjoy that episode. I had such a great time talking to her. One of my favorite things we've ever done. It was brilliant. I I am Pertle. So... Everyone, welcome to the October episode. This is a really timely one. Uh, In advance of the November 6th United States midterm elections, we've decided to do uh, an episode about the intersection of U.S. politics, women, and foreign policy. So we're not really sure. uh, We're recording this before the election, so we're not really sure what's coming uh, in, in the next few weeks, but we do know the major role that women play when it comes to politics and when it comes to foreign policy. So this month, we'll be hearing from women across a pretty wide array of fields, uh, both American and non-American. As usual, we will start by letting them introduce themselves. My name is Marissa Conway. I'm the co-founder and UK director of the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy. And Despite my American accent, I live in London and our organization is based out of London and we just opened a chapter in Germany. Hi, my name is Ruchika Tolshian. I'm a journalist and the author of The Diversity Advantage, Fixing Gender Inequality in the Workplace. I'm originally Singaporean, but I currently live in Seattle, Washington in the United States. In this episode, we will also hear from Lauren Baer, She is currently running for the U.S. House of Representatives in Florida's 18th Congressional District, but she was actually interviewed back in December of 2016, so we will let her explain her roles then with the Obama administration. So for the last six years, I have been, uh, I've served as a member of the Obama administration. Um, I spent about five and a half years working um, as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff, which is essentially the internal strategy and innovation unit for the Secretary of State. I worked first for Secretary Clinton and then for Secretary Kerry. And I have rounded out my tenure uh, in the Obama administration by serving as the, the senior policy advisor to Samantha Power, our U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. And if Lauren is elected this November, she'll be the first openly gay woman elected to Congress in Florida. And finally, we've also included some of the great content from our interview with Lori Edelman, who is the former director of global communications at Planned Parenthood International. She spoke to women in foreign policy shortly before the inauguration of Donald Trump. So some of the references she makes will be to For example, the vice president-elect, he is obviously now the vice president, that sort of thing. So to begin, um, I think a really basic question that we don't have a lot of concrete answers to is whether women operate differently sort of politically or specifically regarding foreign policy than men do. I think that there is a debate regarding whether there is a distinction and if there is a distinction, what characterizes it? What What are some examples of of women operating differently in the foreign policy space than, than their male counterparts? Yeah, it's, it's really a good question. So uh, Ruchika had some thoughts to start us out. 
Yeah. Um, so I actually began my career in journalism as a business journalist, and I was very sort of focused on the thought that being a woman uh, in the workplace didn't really matter, and it didn't matter where you were from or your gender or your race or your your anything about you. Um, my focus was very much on, again, very the, the sort of U.S., ideology, which I saw carried on in the country I grew up in, in Singapore, which is, you know, what matters is how hard you work and how good you are. Um, and and so I really, really bought into that ideology. And, and that was my focus throughout my career. And then, you know, slowly in journalism, I, I did start to see the difference in the way sort of stories were assigned, or if I brought in um, you know, in daily news, if I brought in a story that I thought was really important, it wasn't given as much off um, space as the ones by the male reporters and made me realize that a lot of the existing narrative around women needing to do better, women leaning in, and the only reason women and women of color weren't getting ahead is because they didn't lean in far enough. Um, you know, it really got me thinking that um, my own experiences and the experience of women around me really got me thinking that we need to examine that narrative more carefully. And the more research I did, the more people I spoke to, the more I realized that it wasn't that women weren't trying enough or trying hard enough. It was very much a sort of societal, um, the way that society was structured was focused on keeping women and especially women of color out of the top ranks, out of the decision making. And as I think about women in foreign policy, an area, you know, when I was younger, I was really interested. I actually even uh, applied to be a diplomat in Singapore. I wasn't, I, I was, um, you know, unsuccessful. But as I think, thought about that, as I looked around at the people around me, I definitely saw that there is a very much, um, you know, it's largely male around the world making the foreign policy, um, you know, working as ambassadors, all of that. Um, but also very, very white or very much in, in countries like Singapore, it was very sort of Chinese. And I, and I realized that there's very little opportunity unless there are structural changes to have women, and again, especially women of color, get ahead in many, many industries around the world, but foreign policy is definitely one of them. And, and Lauren had some thoughts about her experience as a mother and working in foreign policy as well. I haven't been uh, at, at work since I had the, the baby eight weeks ago. Um, although, uh, as you know, you know, U.S. maternity leave policies and family leave policies in general are are radically different than they are in, in the rest of the world. And, you know, particularly with the federal government, um, which actually does not offer any unpaid leave at all. You're permitted to take up to 12 weeks and not lose your job, but what you're using is your sick leave um, and any accrued vacation time. And I think it's actually critical when it, when it comes to thinking about recruiting women to work in foreign policy and then retaining quality women um, and men for that matter. You know, any number of women leave foreign policy or leave government service on account of the, uh, the, the family leave policies or conversely, um, you know, suffer real setbacks in their careers because of the sacrifices they have to make to, in order to take any time with young children. And Marissa Conway had some thoughts as well. I think in, when it comes down to policymaking, I don't think women inherently have this like 
naturally better ability to to make more effective foreign policy or whatever. I feel like we all kind of participate in this very, you know, patriarchal structure that shapes um, so much of, of how we participate in this world. And you really have to actively unlearn that. Um, and everybody does. It's not just a gender thing. Um, I will say, you know, with, with most of the women I know who are in foreign policy, we all seriously, seriously struggle from imposter syndrome in a way that I've never seen my male colleagues experience. Like, uh, and again, like, I think it's just kind of the conditions that we're brought up in. Like, I think women are still really raised to be like quiet and complicit and like nice and friendly and smile. And so when we do speak up and use our voice, it's, it's just, you, you start kind of falling back on this, like, well, should I be doing this? Should I be saying this? Like, who, who am I to say this? Why am I the person who's taking me seriously? Like, I don't know. I know I'm not the only one that has this kind of, I don't know, broken record of really horrible negative thoughts about myself when I do kind of, um, move more into my power essentially. So I do see in that way, women and men approach their jobs very differently. But I think when it comes down to like doing the actual work, I think if you're competent, you're competent. People have different life experiences that lend to different opinions. And, um, and I feel like all of that is really important within foreign policy. And in general, it's a very elite kind of undemocratic field because not many foreign policy makers are elected. Um, There's a lot of, kind of behind the scenes backdoor diplomacy that we don't see um that we you know we don't vote for these people to be there yeah imposter syndrome is something that has come up before and will likely continue to come up on this podcast i absolutely get that and have experienced it too i think as with many issues the first step really is to become aware of the problem and that's really the only way that we can work through it right if we're if we're not aware of of the fact that we're kind of suffering from imposter syndrome then we are um way more limited in the way that we can work through it so um switching gears a little bit both ashley and i are americans um and through some great analysis we know that a number of you listeners are too so we thought that it would be important to just quickly touch on the idea of why the whole world watches U.S. elections when perhaps the same isn't true in reverse. So Marissa summed it up pretty well. I think, I mean, it kind of speaks to the pervasiveness of American politics that even if I'm not actively trying to pay attention to it, it's still very much on my radar because it's always in the news. Um, Obviously, it would be kind of the, the bullet points rather than perhaps the full summary of what's going on in the States, but the U S is never out of the news over here. Um, and, and I can have an educated guess perhaps and say that's probably the case with the rest of Europe as well. Um, just because we are such a, we are a world power, a perhaps fading world power, but the American government has, just an exponential impact on the rest of the world with what it does with its policies, the people involved in the administration, et cetera. 
And Ruchika, who is not American but does live in the U.S., had some great thoughts on the same topic. Um, you know, a lot of what happens in the United States and in U.S. foreign policy and elections really determines a lot of what happens around the world. And I've seen that time and time again. And, and you know, seeing the U.S., you know, leading the charge on, in many ways, women's rights, even on, on uh, you know, opportunities for people from different backgrounds, having um, Barack Obama as a president, I cannot emphasize to you how much those conversations, th that reality sparked conversations, even in Singapore, you know, in Singapore, there's a Chinese majority, there were conversations, if the US could elect a black president, are we in a place where we could have a non Chinese prime minister, which hasn't been done to date. And so the whole world, I think, is very much influenced by certainly the power uh, certainly the the impact that the U.S. has had on the entire world, you know, foreign policy, on currency, on all matters. Um, but I also think, you know, and, and part of it is also that sort of um, there's been a very strong marketing machine behind the United States around the world. Um, so, you know, again, growing up overseas in, in Singapore, I really thought to myself, wow, the U.S. is a place where everyone's equal. It's very much how hard you work. Um, it's not determined, your destiny is not determined by the color of your skin or, or your gender identity or any other identities. And um, that's a very, very pervasive narrative wherever you go around the world when people talk about the United States. And it's only when you actually come here that you see, you know, that's different. Um, so I think, I think, there's you know different facets to this i think one of it is obviously one of it is one of the sort of facets is how much the united states impacts and influences what happens around the world the second is definitely that marketing machine uh that i refer to and this is annika chiming back in uh ruchika will come back later and expand a little bit more on these thoughts so you may be wondering why should people with an interest in foreign policy pay attention to domestic electoral politics? Sometimes we treat these things like they live in two completely different worlds. And I think, first of all, that's a real, that's a real fallacy on our part, because obviously um, all policy is affected by our elected policymakers and the people they put into power. And there's, there's no separate foreign policy process from the domestic electoral process. I think there is sort of a, a symbiosis there. And so we asked the woman we were talking to, why should people with an interest in foreign policy pay attention to domestic electoral politics? Why should they care? And we asked if there were any races in particular that they were watching closely. Lori Edelman starts us off. Now we see with the incoming administration that um, we have an extreme push by politicians like Vice President-elect Mike Pence, who in the U.S. want to defund and shut down Planned Parenthood, um, which would deny millions of people access to services that um, they rely on. Um, but we are also seeing that these attacks are not just attacks on Planned Parenthood, but they're attacks against the reproductive rights movement that um, Planned Parenthood stands for. And so um, Planned Parenthood Global ourselves are not um, currently receiving um, USAID money. So there would not be um, a direct, you know, defund effort in the same way that Planned Parenthood in the U.S. is facing defunding under the Trump administration. But 
we are extremely concerned um, with the impact that this incoming administration could have on women, young people, and communities in the global south and around the world. Because as you all know, um, the U.S. is a, a huge contributor to so many global health programs, you know, the leading bilateral donor for um, family planning and um, really um, meant to be a um, beacon of um, progressive uh, values and democracy and global health around the world. Um, and we have seen indications, although um, we can't know for sure, uh, that some of that legacy and um, some of those contributions may be in jeopardies. And Marissa spoke to this as well. I think like one of the things we're really trying to do with CFFP is to make foreign policy a lot more accessible to just the general public. Um, and I do think that there's just so much power in like grassroots movements and you know, a lot of what we try to do is work really closely with like NGOs, think tanks, politicians to convince them of the importance of feminist foreign policy. But that really can't be done without just, you know, those people who go to protests and make sure, you know, they angry tweet their senators when they say dumb things. Like, it's really a very critical part of foreign policy making, even though it seems like maybe a detached thing. Finally, here are some thoughts from Ruchika on the same topic. It's also a little bit of that hubris that comes with having that much of power and influence. And I can say this as an immigrant, it's been quite difficult for me when I, how much I heard people say, Americans who had the right to vote, saying to me, an immigrant who A, could not vote and B, very much our destinies depend on who's in that office and we're realizing much, much more every day. Um, but people, Americans would say to me, you know, I can't be bothered to vote or it doesn't matter anyway, or uh, I don't like any of the candidates. So I'm not going to, you know, bother to like, you know, look deeper into maybe the issues or maybe take a stand. And I think there is a little bit of hubris that comes with being so powerful and influential around the world but then not understanding the responsibility that comes with it. So I think my big message is if you can vote in the United uh, midterm United States midterm elections, please do. But I mean, it's also this, the, 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 the attitude I saw in the United States, which is always concerning to me is in any individualistic society, it's easy to say, I don't need to get involved in politics because the school district that my kids will go to, the parks in my area, you know, my ability to travel, my ability to have economic opportunity in the jobs that I uh, apply for are, are certain. So I don't need to look around me and think about whether my neighbor has the same opportunity, whether, you know, a, a woman of color who whose family is born, you know, two miles away from me will she have the same opportunities as me? And the answer is, is no. And I think it's we really have a, a, a responsibility. I hope that the U.S., the outcome of the 2016 U.S. presidential elections have demonstrated and continue to demonstrate, you know, day by day, how important it is to actually have a little bit of a collectivistic um, mindset, you know, a collectivistic mindset. And also uh, the idea that, hey, even if I have a lot of privilege, even if I come from 
and live in a in an area and because of other factors such as my skin color it doesn't matter what happens um you know because i'm still safe i think that's very very concerning because at the end of the day if one person is not safe none of us are safe i can really only speak for myself obviously but i watch domestic politics like a hawk <laughs> even though i mostly study international issues it's something that i really pay attention to and i think really the important thing here is also just to remember to vote for those of you who are americans listening to this to this podcast before the election domestic politics really affect foreign policy and voting is one way to make sure that your voice is heard so for those of you who are listening who maybe aren't american or who are interested in taking um taking a step further and maybe working in this realm of politics and foreign policy that we're discussing, we wanted to know and we asked the women, how does one get a position working as a foreign policy person for an elected leader? What is the path or the route there? And we know it's, it's, it's really different for many people, but Lauren shared her path with us. In the, in the United States, Overwhelmingly, our, our people who work in national security are members of either uh, the, the Career Civil Service um, at the State Department or the Career Foreign Service. But there are a small number of, of political appointees, several hundred. For me, or I guess I should say, there are a number of routes um, into becoming a political appointee. Several people get these types of roles um, in virtue of having worked on or volunteered for uh, campaigns. Um, others get them um, in virtue of their their outside expertise. For me, I uh, I had not worked on the campaign um, actually. You know, in two thousand eight, the year that the uh, the presidential campaign was going on, I was I just graduated law school. I was working in a federal clerkship um, and was therefore precluded from engaging in any kind of campaign activity. But I did have a background in in foreign policy and in law and therefore had a number of, of connections with people who were, were serving at a, a seen fairly senior level in the administration. So when it was about halfway through uh, President Obama's first term, I was at the point uh, that, that I decided that I wanted to make a career shift and, and, and enter um, the foreign policy space or, or re-enter it, I should say. I'd been practicing law in New York, primarily commercial litigation and, and appellate work, um, and, and wanted to get back to, uh, to my foreign policy roots. And so for me, it was a matter of, you know, reaching out to those individuals I knew who were serving in the administration, finding out um, about uh, available positions, and then, you know, having the, the good fortune of my resume ending up in, you know, in front of the right person at the right time. And then Ruchika also spoke a bit about uh, ways that she got involved in her own community. Um, I realized that very few women, and especially women of color, were getting into uh, sort of even thinking about careers in foreign policy and diplomacy. And I think that really worried me. And, um, you know, not, not I think it definitely worried me because I started thinking about who are the representatives that sort of make those connections globally and, and sort of advocate for countries globally. And I realize more and more, it's not women, it's not women of color, it's not people who look like me. And therefore, it's very easy to get 
turned away from careers like that. One thing when I moved to to the to Seattle five years ago, Seattle specifically, um, I decided I really wanted to become civically engaged. Um, and one of the reasons was again looking around me, seeing very very little representation. Um, seeing, you know, sort of the issues that I care deeply about, gender equity, not at all making any sort of agenda. You know, people especially didn't talk about women in the workplace and the lack of economic opportunity for women. Um, so I really wanted to get civically engaged. And I realized that there there actually aren't, there are many opportunities and they aren't advertised very well. So in, in the U.S., for example, in Seattle, I, uh, you know, applied and, and was nominated for a voluntary position um, to advise the Seattle mayor and, and Seattle City Council on women's issues. It's called the Seattle Women's Commission, and, um, and now I'm one of the co-chairs uh, two years later of serving. Um, and I realized that there are opportunities, and it's, it's really necessary to seek them out. Veronica and I, it's pretty clear how the dominance of American foreign policy can shape the foreign policy of the rest of the world and even maybe the domestic policy of other countries. But I think some people might not fully understand how American foreign policy and sort of the hegemony of America can affect other people's work and can affect sort of the entire conversation because we miss certain things when we're only talking about America and American foreign policy. And for this particular issue, Marissa gave us a lot to think about. So I went to the NATO summit back in July and they had this kind of offshoot of the event called NATO engages. And the, the purpose of this was to bring together um, basically foreign policy wonks from all over to just come nerd out about foreign policy for two days. And there were very clear um, agendas. I think one of them was um, very strongly emphasizing the importance of NATO. And this is kind of coming, this event was coming after, you know, a series of, of sound bites from Trump basically complaining about how the U.S. carries NATO and um, slandering it a little bit. And so <laughs> they're their kind of response to this was to like really just fiercely be like, no, NATO is really important. We need this. Like everybody needs it. And one of the first discussions we had over the course of two days was like, well, how do we make this event not about Trump? How do we make sure we don't talk about Trump all the time? And my thought to this was just by even like bringing up Trump as the very first thing and asking, how do we not make this about Trump? You're sort of making the whole thing about Trump. I feel like every time you focus too much on who is elite and in power, but more importantly, in the case of the Trump administration, who is sort of taking up space in a very reality TV sort of way, um, right? Like who is who is getting the headlines in the tabloid magazines, which this is how I think of the Trump administration in my head. Like you detract from everything else that's going on. So you detract from these really important conversations, particularly with feminist foreign policy around marginalized communities that already aren't getting a lot of attention, already aren't being taken seriously. And then we're spending so much of our time focusing on how Trump said he was in love with Kim Jong-un, which is a really weird, weird thing. But at the same time, it's, it's almost like a show. Like I'm not convinced if he knows what he's doing or not. 
I genuinely, I don't know one way or the other, but it's, it's this like, give them the razzle dazzle. And then we forget about what's actually important. We forget about the people that are actually affected by foreign policy. We get so caught up in a conversation about these two ridiculous world leaders that we forget about how, you know, this is affecting, you know, we're still dealing with the aftermath of the children being separated from their parents at the border. And for all of the people in North Korea who are suffering under a dictatorship like that just gets kind of left out because the sensationalization of that one particular line is just so dramatic and it's all anybody wants to talk about. Similarly, we wondered and asked, is there any issue that you wish got more coverage in the U.S. foreign policy space than it currently does? I mean, my mind immediately goes actually towards domestic policy because you really can't have a feminist foreign policy without a feminist domestic policy. And obviously, shots at a feminist foreign policy while Trump is in office is zero. But this is still kind of how I frame things in my mind. And I just feel like the ease at which we, as a, as a culture, just kind of um, ignore indigenous communities, that's particularly troubling. Um, I think the way America treats immigrants and the kind of rhetoric around immigration and particularly Mexican immigrants um, is just disgusting. And I think it's, it's, it's also very short sighted in that, I don't know, it's, it's sort of, again, what, what can we sensationalize? What will get headlines when immigration needs to be looked at and in a bigger picture? Like it's never just one thing in isolation. It's never just a ton of Mexican people trying to cross over the border into US. It's part of a bigger system. And we need to be asking like, well, what caused them to try and come to the US in the first place? Like what's going on in their homes with their families that they think this is the best solution is to take this incredibly risky route and come over and live in a country without documentation. Clearly, there's a very compelling pressing need that would drive them to do this. I don't think anybody just picks up one day and says like, oh, maybe I'll give this a shot. Um, and then that feeds into kind of bigger stories of like our global economy. Like obviously there's a lot of trafficking, like both human trafficking, drug trafficking across the border um, feeds into bigger state relationships, like how our administration speaks about and with the Mexican government. Um, and so I do, I mean, I guess if I were to try and narrow it down, I think my frustration is with the kind of disconnect and very short-sighted way that we approach very, very specific issues that are actually part of a broader whole. And it's almost like, I do think perhaps some of it is just this like fear about re-election but no one seems to be thinking long-term and like so few people actually like talk about structures and institutions and try and see how things fit into bigger pictures and how different policies, like not just immigration policy, but trade policy, like potentially has effects on, you know, whatever headline has made it into the newspaper that day. 
Something I discussed with Marissa in our conversation, and that I'll point out again here, is that in reality, most border crossings from Mexico into the United States are by people from other Latin American countries rather than Mexican citizens. So there's an extra level of racism at play that allies everyone of a certain skin tone and linguistic heritage into Mexican, all the while ignoring the very real challenges of violence and persecution in countries like Honduras, Guatemala, countries like that, that drive people first to Mexico and then eventually to the U.S., So coming off of that, you might wonder, how do I fix this? Or maybe there's another foreign policy problem that you really want to get your hands on and get up to your elbows in and make a difference. So we asked some of these women, what made them choose this career? How did they get here? Yeah, it's such an important question. Um, So I'm glad that we heard a bit from Lauren. I think it's incredibly important in all policymaking, but particularly foreign policymaking, for individuals with uh, diverse voices to, to have a seat at the table, especially in today's world with the, the complexity of the problems that, that we are addressing. And, you know, with, with a country that is itself incredibly diverse, if we're going to have a foreign policy that adequately tackles the challenges of the 21st century and, and brings to bear on those challenges all of the, the insights of the wonderfully diverse American public, then it's important uh, that women Um, are there as decision makers, that LGBT persons are there as decision makers, and that other minorities are there. Uh, You know, I I encourage any young women who have an inkling to want to work in this space to to pursue pursue their dreams and to to seek uh, a seat at the table and um, to to exercise um, their voice. Participation is so essential. I know that if I could change something about American foreign policy, it would definitely be um, creating space for more voices at the table. I think about Mm. um, Ben Rhodes, actually, his description of the the DC foreign policy community. He calls them the blob. And I think about that really often. We need, we desperately need new voices. And we also need to reward diversity of thought instead of subtly kind of forcing conformity and, and, and creating this, this foreign policy blob. Um, yeah, that's in my like ideal perfect world. <laughs> that would happen. Um, so I actually also asked Ruchika what she would change about foreign policy, and I loved her answer. I think that mindset that, um, you know, it sounds very sort of kumbaya and, you know, uh, let's all love each other. But I think we're really deeply lacking empathy for each other. Um, and I see this because I work, um, I work, I sort of dabble in some sort of global health work um, as it relates to diversity and inclusion. And I really see that we are, whether this always existed, I don't know. But the older I get, the more I see that there is a lack of sort of empathy and understanding that we're all connected in this world, right? So in the same way, uh, somebody can not think of their neighbor in the United States and wonder, you know, are they okay? Are they safe? Do they need something so that we all have the equal amount of economic mobility and just safety in life? But I think we also have that attitude to other countries. 
And that's certainly true in the United States. And I see that more and more of the world is becoming isolationist and more and more focused inward. There's obviously a very strong nationalist uh, sentiment, even rearing its head all over Europe. And it's very concerning. Um, if there was if there was something that I wish we could change, I really wish that we could see other people as people. We could see other countries as our neighbors. And I and I understand this sounds very very trite and sounds very very um, you know a little wishy washy. But I think without that empathy, I think when we're in those we're at those tables making decisions and not underrepresented people, but when especially white men are at those tables making those decisions, they when you have a very individualistic winner-takes-all mentality, at the end of the day, nobody wins, but especially people who are already in sort of marginalized communities, they really, really stand to lose. Finally, we got some pretty inspiring advice from Lori Edelman that we wanted to share with you as well. I think the kindest compliment I've ever received in a professional setting to this day has um, been that I have good instincts. And I think um, so many young women especially are um, encouraged when they enter the workforce to put their instincts aside in order to um, kind of learn the way of the world and, and um, you know, get their bearings. And I think it's really, it is really important to um, take lessons from those around you and um, learn the ropes. But it's also really important to keep that um, instinct that you have and trust yourself. And I think especially when it comes to communications and global health, um, there has to be a voice of authenticity that shines through all of the NGO jargon and um, all of the uh, all of the things that um, can come up when you're um, working in global health. I think that this is so important, not only professionally, but also personally. I have really learned over the past few years that trusting my judgment is essential. And not only that trusting my judgment is essential to sort of the way I operate, but that my judgment can be trusted. And that even though I I am young and I have this kind of like baby face and I have this newly minted master's degree and I'm, I'm working full time for sort of one of the first times in my life, like I have developed a keen sense of judgment for the past, you know, almost 25 years. So I think it's very important to realize that no matter what reasons you have for doubting yourself, there is this wealth of knowledge that you even subconsciously have synthesized that will really lend itself to giving you that gut feeling of what's right and what's wrong, not just on an ethical or moral level, but what's right or what's wrong professionally, what's the best way to approach a problem. And I think you should really not be afraid to draw on diverse experiences you might have had. Heck yeah, preach sister. I totally agree with that. I think that, I mean, I, th- I think I've said this before, but I really firmly believe that we all have a unique contribution to make and that it's really important that we do the work of showing up to make that contribution. Um, and this episode has been a really interesting exploration of that. I know uh, it's it's definitely edgy to make an episode about American politics, particularly when America is already at the center of a lot of conversations. And so I know that we really look forward to continuing to to include more voices and feature prominently more voices in, in the coming months and coming episodes of folks who are not coming from America. You know, we've, we've dominated for a long time. But um, I think 
whether we like it or not, American foreign policy, American politics, that reverberates out into the rest of the world. And Mm -hmm. it is so important for us to be thoughtful and, and, and consider the ways in which it does it. And also think about the ways that we can influence it for good. Right. So to be American, I think about this a lot. Like for me to be a white American woman, I was born with enormous privilege just by the country that I was born into and what our country has an enormous impact on the rest of the world. And it is absolutely incumbent upon me to use that privilege wisely and to use that privilege to impact change that is positive. And, um, I, like I said this before, but the most immediate way that I can think to do that in the next two weeks is to vote. And so I that's hope very that, well said. Yeah. I hope that those of you who are listening, who are, who are registered or who are American are definitely going to get out there and vote. And that, this episode has provided some inspiration to you for the places where we might feel intimidated, the places where we might feel like the foreign policy community, particularly in DC is, is a blob um, that you feel inspired to really get in there and do make the meaningful contribution that you can make. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great send off. And I think that really encapsulates what we wanted to do with this episode because it can be, sort of a tricky tightrope to walk to say like we're trying not to be U.S. centric but at the same time these are really crucial elections not just domestically but they have massive foreign policy implications as we've seen so I hope that we have I hope that we have successfully walked that tightrope yeah yeah but but just in case we didn't (laughs) we want this (laughs) to be a conversation so come talk to us on the internet um we'll be back at the end of November with our next episode on international scientific cooperation but in the meantime we're on twitter at at women in fp also we're on instagram and we're doing videos uh every weekend for over the next few months where each women in foreign policy team member is introducing themselves so definitely check that out uh and then my personal twitter is at annika ep yeah the videos are looking really cool i think annika's is coming up here pretty shortly um you guys will get to see my lovely face in december Um, we absolutely want to hear back from you about what you think about this episode, what you thought about our previous episodes, what you think about the podcast in general, um, anything you'd like to hear in upcoming episodes. Basically my eyes will light up. If you send me a Twitter message of any sort, (laughs) I will be very excited about it. Um, so if you have a thought that can't be expressed in 240 characters, which some of us still do allegedly, um, we would also love emails. Um, and you can find contact information on the Women in Foreign Policy website for all of us. I am now on Twitter at Vaguely Academic, which is a new Twitter handle for me. Uh, the past few episodes have included my previous Twitter handle. So just a little note, if you're going to go find me on Twitter, it's now at Vaguely Academic. There are fewer underscores. It's so much easier to say. <laughs> um, if you like the work we're doing, please consider supporting us via PayPal at LMGoulet, which is spelled L-M-G-O-U-L-E-T, or on Patreon at Women in Foreign Policy. Thanks so much for listening and for being here, and we will see you next month. Bye. Bye.